0: Welcome to our weekly catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now let's start the class learn the lessons. So welcome to our Catechism class. In our last class we began to look at Lord's Day 16 question 40, the question which asks us why it was necessary for Christ to suffer death. By way of introduction to that question we explored some contemporary attitudes to death And we reminded ourselves that everything in this life is futile outside of Christ. For all of our earthly possessions, all our plans and achievements, everything that we do and have will perish with us when we die. But we concluded that Jesus' death changes everything. In the believer, the attitude that the world has about death and dying is completely turned on its head. Jesus has changed everything in his atoning death on the cross for us. But the question is, why did he have to actually die? The Catechist's answer is that he died to make satisfaction for our sins. He asks, why was it necessary for Christ to suffer death? The answer is, because the justice and truth of God required that satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. God in his unchanging nature is both just and holy, and he is immutable. And that means he never changes. If you read Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, you see these words, For I am the Lord, I change not Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So because God never changes, the wages of sin must be death. For he said that the soul that sins will die. To Adam, our first father, God warned in his law, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2 and 17. And that's why Jesus had to die. He died my death. That's what we're going to look at in this podcast. I'm Bob McAvoy and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So let's start with this statement. God is both just and truthful. We have to establish the importance of Christ's death and that's what the Catechist does. He makes a statement about the nature and attributes of God. Ligonier like Ministries publish Table Talk and one of the editions reads like this. Being perfectly holy our creator cannot tolerate sin. He cannot even look upon it not in that he cannot see it but that he cannot see it and allow it to go unpunished. For us to be reconciled to God our sin had to be dealt with. The sins of men and women had to be atoned for and this had to be done by a man, for only a human being can atone for the sins of other human beings. The Son of God as a man atoned for the sins of his people bearing the punishment, the curse, we deserved in his person. G.I. Williamson tells us that Christ's death was required by the nature of God. In his book on the Heidelberg Catechism, he writes, He, that is God, is holy and righteous. There is no way that God could possibly bypass the demands of justice. How then could he allow sinners to go free? How could he treat them as if they'd never sinned? Well, one thing is certain. He could not do it by allowing sin to go unpunished. To do that, God would have to deny himself. And the scripture says that God cannot do that. So we can confidently say that only by Christ's death on the cross could God's justice be satisfied in him in Jesus, the righteous demands of God's law were completely fulfilled for us. Philippians 2 verse 8 says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And consider the implications of what Paul says in Romans 6 and 23. He says there, For the wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In that one phrase, both the gospel and the reason that Jesus had to die is both simply and profoundly presented to us. It is in order that we might receive the gift that Jesus died. And also because there was no one else who could satisfy God's justice other than his own sinless son. Hebrews 2 and 9 But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. In the late 19th century, Mrs Cecil Francis Alexander wanted to teach her Sunday school class the meaning of the words suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried in the Apostles' Creed. The very phrase being dealt with by our instructor in this section of the Catechism. To help the children learn about the death of Jesus, she wrote these words in a little poem. There is a green hill far away, outside a city wall, where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell, what pains he had to bear. But we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven, and let us in. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too, and trust in his redeeming blood, and try his works to do. In his commentary in Romans, Dr. R.C. Sproul writes this, If God were to give us what we earn, what we deserve, we would perish from his wrath. But thanks be to God that he gives us what was earned by his Son. Jesus got what he did not deserve. We got what he did deserve. The righteousness that is by faith. Christ's supreme act of obedience in bearing God's wrath gives us the greatest blessing, namely eternal blessedness. Let us praise and thank him this day. Oh, shit. Okay, let's move on to question 41 and we'll ask how do we know that Jesus really died on the cross? Now the Apostles' Creed asserts that Jesus was crucified, dead and buried. And that prompts our catechist to ask in question 41 why was he buried? And the answer we give is to show thereby that he was really dead. So we've stated the vital importance of Christ's death for sinners. And the Catechist is now anxious to show us the actual historicity behind that death. But why would we want to ask a question like that in the first place? Well, because it's really important that we know that the death of Christ is a truly historical fact. You see, there are some, including the Muslims and historically those who read the Gnostic Gospels, who believed and taught that Jesus did not die on the cross. The Muslims, for example, will tell you that he was replaced there by some other man, maybe even Simon of Cyrene, or they will say that perhaps he merely just swooned and he was resuscitated by the coldness of the tomb, and they will say that he fled the area and lived to marry and to raise a family. So if the physical, literal death of Jesus is of such vital importance, after all, without that death we cannot be forgiven, then it is important also that we should be able to firmly establish its actuality. The Heidelberg Catechist certainly thinks so, for he reasons that the burial of Christ is proof that he actually died. Here's a basic list of proofs for the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. The Roman soldier, you see, was well trained in killing. He was a killing machine. I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on this, for it is well outside the remit of this podcast where we're examining the teaching of the Catechism. But it's essential to note this point in passing. The Roman soldier was a cold-blooded trained killer, who could bring about the death of a prisoner in the most brutal, agonising and prolonged methods imaginable. A Roman soldier knew how to make a prisoner suffer, and he knew exactly what death was about. Let's make this list of proofs. Let's catalogue how that soldier would know that a man was actually dead. Number one. The penalty for a soldier who failed to carry out a death sentence to its conclusion would be to suffer and die himself. These soldiers were under strict discipline. These men have to carry out orders without hesitation or they will suffer the consequences. Number two. The Romans had whipped Jesus to within an inch of death in the scourging. The Roman scourging was merciless. The prisoner was lashed with a whip embedded with stones and metal that literally tore the flesh of the person who was the subject of that beating. It would be rare for any man to survive for long after a beating like that. It was a cruel torture and some of the soldiers were sadistic enough to actually enjoy inflicting as much pain as possible during it. Thirdly, Jesus had collapsed under the weight of the cross. So weak was he after the brutality of the trial and the mockery and the whipping he had endured. The cross was heavy, probably at this stage just the crossbar, made of rough wood, With a surface that would inflict maximum injuries and pain to the back of the victim already in unbearable pain because of the scourging. Fourthly, he was nailed to the cross. With all the agony of that prolonged torture, do I need to describe it for you? It was the most wicked form of torture and death. Sometimes it lasted for days as the condemned man fought against gravity for every life-sustaining breath until in agony he actually suffocated himself in cardiopulmonary failure. Fifthly, the soldiers had come to break the legs of the crucified man. They had examined Jesus for signs of life. A spear had been thrust into his side, piercing so far into the pericardial sack around the heart that blood and water had flowed out. And then add to this the indescribable spiritual torment. As he bore in his own body the weight and burden and guilt of all my sin and the punishment for that sin and for the sins of the whole world and that awful moment of darkness when he was separated from his father in heaven the awful forsakenness of calvary and to all of this there were witnesses there can be no doubt jesus was dead And his body was laid in the tomb. Let's go to the evidence laid out for us in the Apostles Creed and therefore commented upon by our catechist. It says there he was laid in the tomb. Let's remind ourselves that he was crucified and dead and buried. There was a Pharisee. There was a man called Joseph who was a secret disciple of Jesus. A man who was afraid of what the Jews might do if they discovered his true allegiance, and then perhaps of his wealth and his position, a man who had some access to Pilate. So he went and pleaded from him the body of Jesus. And had he not done so, what would have become of that wounded, pierced, lifeless form? In the general Roman world, a crucified body would just have hung on the cross until it rotted away, or until the cross was needed for another criminal. In the Jewish provinces, it would be roughly removed. It would be dumped in the common grave along with other criminals who had also been given the death sentence. When asked, Pilate readily acquiesced. Perhaps his conscience was still troubled over having allowed an innocent man to be murdered. And Joseph took his body from the cross and placed it in his own tomb, and with some reverence and with some respect. He'd been joined by Nicodemus, and together they prepared the body for burial, they wrapped it in linen cloths, they folded into those cloths a mixture of spices to fragrant the tomb. And he was buried and the tomb was sealed and it was guarded by the Roman soldiers who had been assigned to the Sanhedrin. Tell you what, let's read the actual text. We read from John 19 and verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, Besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then they took the body of Jesus, and they wound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 59 And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in a rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Let's sum up. The burial of Christ is positive proof that Jesus died, that he really died, that he did not faint or swoon, or be substituted by anyone else in the cross. Jesus died. And that death was the punishment for my sins and for yours. Away back in the early part of the 20th century, an author called Frank Morrison set out to write a book disproving the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. The first chapter of his book, Who Moved the Stone, is entitled The Book That Refused to Be Written. For when he began to thoroughly investigate the events of the death and burial of and resurrection of Jesus, he realised that the facts were indisputable. Jesus had really died, really was buried and really rose from the dead. His book is a convincing read for anyone who is sceptical about the atoning death of Christ. And the burial of Christ shows us that in his sacrifice on the cross, the effects of Adam's fall are completely reversed. Adam came from dust and he returned to dust. That was part of the curse of sin following the fall. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 tells us that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Genesis 3 and verse 19 says, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thy return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast I taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Jesus came from God, was crucified and buried in dust for us, and rose again. The sting of death and decay and the grave was defeated in Christ. And the burial of Christ gives us great comfort and hope. For there are days when we too stand at a grave and weep. Graveside weeping is common to us all, to all of humanity, to saint and to sinner alike. But we believers have a lovely assurance. For we mingle the sadness of parting with the joy of anticipation. For just as our loved ones are laid in a tomb, so also was Christ. And just as he rose triumphant from that tomb, so too shall they. And so we shall meet them again. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes these words. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Therefore comfort one another with these words.